Okay, so we're, we're live now. And to begin with, I just, um, well, I want to give you a text which really governs all of this, and um, I'll read you the text and you'll understand why. If Christ has not been raised from the dead, then your faith is futile. That was Paul writing to the Corinthians. And it really emphasizes the point that I tried to make in the publicity that this topic of resurrection, um, particularly the resurrection of Jesus, is absolutely central to the Christian faith. And I don't think Paul could have put it more strongly than that. So that's, in a way, why I was so interested in um, doing this series of talks, um, because I don't think we probably spend enough time in the church on the resurrection and its implications. What we're going to do in these four sessions is in the first three weeks we are going to be looking at the Bible in some depth. This week and next week we're going to be looking at the gospel accounts of what happened after the resurrection. In the third week we're going to be looking at what Paul said about the resurrection. And in the fourth week we're going to try and uh, translate or apply some of this to our lives today so that this isn't just kind of academic theory but this is something that has relevance to our Christian lives now 2,000 years later. I've chosen to do it in this order looking at the Gospels first because I think it's much easier for most people to um, deal with uh, kind of narrative accounts, stories if you like but not suggesting they're made up stories but stories rather than Paul, who, who wrote his letters well before the Gospels were written down. Um, but I think it's easier for most people to... Um, and the, and the, um, the stories, the accounts in the Gospels are probably more familiar to most of us than some of uh, Paul's kind of working out of the theology of it. So I think if we look at the Gospels first, we, that will stand us in good stead for... Um, an assault on Paul, or Paul's assault on us, in week three. Um, we're going to look at the individual Gospels, and we're going to look at them in some depth, individually. And you may think, well, you know, why, don't we, why do we need to do that? Why can't we just kind of cut to the chase? Why can't we um, you know, deal with big questions like authenticity? Why can't we just compare the Gospels and see where they overlap and assume that must be okay, but then where they differ and... And, and work our way through the differences. Well, I hope it'll become clear as we, as we start looking this uh, tonight at Mark and Matthew um, why there is some, something more to um, the approach, why, there, why these accounts are so rich and why they will repay um, study. So what I'm going to do first of all is I'm going to hand you out what I will refer to in future as the synopsis. Um, and um, I'll just hand them out, and then, then I'll explain what they are.
So what you'll see, and I deal first with the first seven pages of this, uh, what you'll see is that there are five columns, and at the head of the column on the first page, and it's consistent throughout, is uh, the name of the Gospel, or Paul's account. So we start with Mark. Uh, in, in the course of this, we, we will be doing a little bit of um, kind of academical, um, biblical um, study. Um, uh, it's necessary because um, otherwise um, you won't understand why I make some of the decisions that I make and concentrate on some things and not on others. But, but I hope that that won't delay us. Um, but Mark comes first. You'll remember that the order in the New Testament is Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. But scholars are almost unanimous in thinking that Mark's Gospel was the first one to be written. Then Matthew, then Luke, then John. And I've also put Paul. And what I've tried to do is to group accounts of the various post-resurrection events together. So you can see that the first section on the first page is headed at the tomb. And there I've laid out, and I've tried to match up as far as possible, individual verses, um, so that um, we get at the beginning um, the references to the, to the first day of the week um, across the page. So it becomes quite easy then to do the comparison that I talked about to see um, how the individual gospel writers um, accounted for what happened very early on the first Easter morning at the tomb. Uh, and then we go on, uh, we go over the page and you can see that already there are some gaps. On the second page there are quite a lot of gaps and um, that's because in one gospel or another there may be accounts that don't appear in the others. Uh, and when we get to the bottom of the third page you can see that we're talking uh, about the road to Emmaus in Luke's gospel and Luke is the only person who uh, reports that account. So we've got a lot of blank pages on three and four. And then we, and then we go on, we carry on in the same way. Um, in order to save paper, when we get to Jesus meets his disciples beside the lake, which is the whole of John chapter 21, rather than having that in the John column, I've put that all at the end. Otherwise, this would become 12 pages long, and that seems unnecessary, just to make the point. Uh, and then Jesus commissions his disciples. So that's pages 1 to 7 in outline. And then on page 8, the appendix, there's 1 Corinthians chapter 15, which is the main, uh, the main thing that we're going to be studying in the third week. So that's the syn synopsis. I, I can't remember exactly what it means, but, but this is a synopsis It compares the accounts. You'll remember that Matthew, Mark and Luke are called the synoptic gospels uh, because they kind of cover the same territory broadly. Uh, so when we come to any readings from the gospel accounts, we'll be using this synopsis. So um, if you can face coming back next week, please bring your synopsis with you, but make good use of it in the meantime. The other thing that perhaps you might like to notice in the fifth column, the Paul column, you have to go down several pages before you come to any entries. And when you do come to some entries in the Paul column, they're very, very brief. And we'll talk more about that in week three. 
but sufficient to note that Paul, when he was writing very early on, either wasn't aware or didn't think that it was important to his message to relay the uh, resurrection stories that became so important for the gospel writers. So I hope that will whet your appetite for when we get on to Paul. What I want to do before we actually start the meat of this session is to kind of set the scene. Uh, Set the scene because the resurrection happened sometime between um, the sun setting on what we now call Good Friday and the sun rising uh, on what we now call Easter Day. The intervening day in the Jewish calendar was the Sabbath, which meant that in practical terms, nothing could be done. Nobody could move. Nothing happened, at least as far as the human beings were concerned. Um, We'll come to consider what God was doing during that period uh, later on. But I want to remind you of what happened uh, towards the end of Good Friday. So, first of all, and this is, this is a potted account, but just, just so that you remember, and it's important because in many of the gospel accounts, they refer back uh, in ways that, um, that we will see in a moment. So Jesus was arrested, if you remember, in the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, according to Matthew and Mark, at that point, his disciples fled. They ran away. Then he was tried. Uh, And at the same time as he was being tried, you may remember that Peter denied knowing Jesus, having anything to do with him. And that is indeed an important element of some of the post-resurrection accounts. Jesus, at his trial, was ultimately condemned to death, and he was crucified in the Roman way. The sky at that time turned black, though John doesn't report that. Uh, The women, and according to Luke and John, others, but always the women, attended the crucifixion. After uh, various accounts of the crucifixion and the words that Jesus spoke on the cross, Jesus dies. And at that point, the temple curtain is torn from top to bottom. Though, again, that's not in John. Matthew alone, at that point also reports an earthquake. Remember the earthquake? When we were were doing this in a slightly abbreviated format yesterday morning with the children present, at the very moment that I mentioned the earthquake in Matthew, one of the children overturned uh, a great big box of toys. So we had a kind of worked example of the earthquake. Um, You may be pleased to hear that I haven't laid that kind of sound effect on for this evening. Uh, Jesus' body is taken down from the cross and um, very hurriedly because um, the day is coming to an end and the Jewish Sabbath begins at nightfall on what we would regard as the day before. Uh, It's hurriedly placed in a tomb which is sealed, closed with a great stone. The women, again not in John, but the women watch the corpse being laid into the tomb. And then, alone in Matthew's Gospel, a guard is set over the tomb to ensure that there is no monkey business of any kind. So, that is probably the briefest account of Good Friday that you're likely to hear. 
but it gives you the essential elements uh, and just places them. And, and already you'll have heard in my summary, which has tried to be honest and straightforward, that the Gospel writers seem to focus on different aspects of the crucifixion. And we shall certainly see that they focus on different aspects of the post-resurrection stories as well. So we're going to start, as I said, with Mark. And, and as I mentioned earlier, scholars believe for reasons that I'm not going to go into because it's not really relevant to this, but they believe that Mark's Gospel was the first one to be written and that it was probably written either in the late 60s or early 70s. And the one thing that is of great significance around that time is that uh, I think it was 72 when Jerusalem was sacked, the temple was destroyed by the Romans as a result of a Jewish insurrection. Um, so that was a kind of critical point and, and, and it gives scholars a lot to argue about as to whether Mark knows about that or he doesn't know about that when he's writing his gospel. So we start with Mark and we start and we're going to read uh, chapter 16 of Mark verses 1 to 8 so you can follow it as I read it if you wish to. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they may go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb and they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone, because they were afraid. The ending of Mark's Gospel, which most scholars say happened at verse 8, is very bewildering, really. It's a very odd end to a Gospel story. Uh, if, you have a, if you have your own Bible, you may well find that there are further verses to chapter 16 of Mark's Gospel. And again, this is a subject of heated debate. But again, almost all scholars agree that it's only verses 1 to 8 that were written by Mark. And that the verses that follow that uh, were written by someone else. Presumably because they were so bewildered that they wanted to finish the account. And the reason for coming to that conclusion is that uh, in the original Greek, it's written in just a completely different way from the whole of the rest of Mark's Gospel. You know, the word order and the words that are used are quite different. I have put down the long, what's called the long ending of Mark's Gospel uh, in the synopsis. And, and you can see that, well, you can't see just by glancing at it, but if you, if you choose to look at it later, you'll see that what it seems to be is a kind of extract 
of the key elements of some of the other gospel accounts. I don't think there, is, uh, there are any circumstances in which I shall refer to these added verses again, but so that you can see what they are. They're there, and they're in italics, just to represent that view that, that they don't represent part of Mark's original account. But having said that, it's a very strange way to end a gospel account, isn't it? Uh, just take the last two verses, and we come back to this in a moment. But first of all, the man gives the women um, an instruction to go and tell the disciples something, something about Jesus, something about the future. The next verse says, they ran away, they were terrified, and they didn't say anything to anybody. The end. If Mark's gospel ended there and that was the only gospel that we had, I think we would be very, very confused, wouldn't we? I think we would. I think it's hard to... Con- because, because in saying, go, uh, go and tell the disciples to go into Galilee, that Jesus will go there before them or ahead of them, as he told you, uh, you almost want to have an account of their meeting in Galilee with the risen Jesus. But you don't get it. So, uh, in the context of any kind of storytelling, it is, let's call it, unusual. <laughs> um, now, and this is not me, because I, I, am, I am not a scholar in any sense at all. But when I read all these books, um, I think that you can account for the ending of Mark's Gospel in four possible ways. First of all, Mark actually intended to finish his Gospel at verse 8. And we will think about that and think about why that might be possible. That might be what he was intended. And there are... are, um, well-reputed scholars like um, Tom Wright, previously um, Bishop of Durham, who's written this kind of magnum opus on the resurrection, telling you everything you could possibly want to know, not just about the resurrection of Jesus, but all the background, how resurrection was understood in the Old Testament, in, in, in the period between the Old Testament and the New, how it was understood in Greek culture, everything you could possibly want to know. His view is that Mark intended to finish his gospel at this point. The next possibility is that Mark actually intended to write more. He, he intended to finish, say, that account with, with um, a narrative about Jesus meeting the disciples in, in Galilee. But for some reason, he was prevented from doing that through illness, through being arrested or running out of paper. I don't know. For some reason, he didn't write it down. The next possibility is that he did indeed write more and that what he wrote has been lost. It's possible because the back page or the front page of a document is always the most vulnerable And um, so it could have become detached before the copies that we're familiar with had been made. Uh, But a variant on that, the fourth possibility, is that he wrote more, but for some reason, someone suppressed what he wrote. Um, 
Both of the last two are slightly unusual in the sense that um, we have excellent um, retention of multiple copies in many cases of the gospel accounts. And even where uh, things became inconvenient from the point of view of those Christians who were uh, interested later on, it does appear that the, the gospel accounts are not substantially altered. There are variant readings, but, but there's nothing like the kind of deletion of a, pass a whole passage just because people couldn't make sense of it or it said something that they weren't particularly keen to hear. I think they, they had a higher regard for uh, the gospel accounts than uh, that they could just kind of forget things that they didn't like. They, they wanted to work with them rather than against them. So um, you can make your own choice, really. If you read that account again at your own time, particularly if you compare it with Matthew's, which we're coming on to in a minute, um, you, can, you can reach your own conclusion and rest assured that whichever conclusion you reach, you will be able to find a scholar to hold your hand <laughs> through it. So you're not on your own. I think what's very interesting, and, and uh, I'll, I'll talk in a moment about um, what, what, what Mark may be trying to say, if indeed this is the extent of what he intended to write. Uh, but before we do that, and I'm going to do the same kind of thing with each of the Gospel accounts, I, I want to look at the words that he wrote, the sense of what he wrote, and uh, pick up on any kind of references to other parts of the gospel. Uh, in Mark's case, in, in the eight verses that we have, um, I've got kind of a dozen cross-references <coughs> to elsewhere in his gospel. Sometimes they are um, what I might call a resonance. Sometimes they're picking up a word. Sometimes they're picking up a phrase. Uh, in one or two cases, that seems to be a really important phrase for Mark uh, and seems to be adding something above and beyond the words. Uh, it is possible that you'll say that I'm kind of um, microscopically looking at these words and, and, well, you know, there are a limited number of words. Isn't it just coincidence that these words come up? Uh, again, my own view is that, that I have the highest regard for the subtlety and sophistication of the Gospel writers. There is so much evidence within them that they aren't simple stories. They were not writing biographies. They were writing about God and Jesus. And if they used words, if they used phrases and used them regularly, particularly if, for example, they picked up words and phrases from the Old Testament, the Jewish scriptures, their Bible of the time, I think that has significance that we shouldn't ignore. But again, you can, you can make your own choice. Um, if any of you were wanting to make extensive notes, don't bother, because I have got a handout for you at the end. But I'm not going to give you the handout now, otherwise you'll be burrowing into the handout, which is in very small print, um, while I'm trying to, um, trying to engage your attention, really, with, with these things that, are, that I think are, are not just fascinating, but they are fascinating, but they have a real point. And I hope as we go through this, if you're, if you're able to stick with it, that the cumulative weight of all this will be kind of overwhelming. So 
Um, Mark starts off um, with, with the women. We'll come back to the women because the women appear in every account and the women are tremendously important. So, so um, we'll, we'll come back to that in a minute. But, but in Mark's account, the women have brought spices. Now this is slightly odd um, because um, spices for anointing a body would normally be applied immediately at the time of death. And, it, and 36 hours in that climate, even in a cool uh, burial chamber, is too late, really, for doing anything useful with spices. Um, and interestingly, it, it may be that the point of the spices is, is to remind us about an event that was very important for Mark's account in the lead-up to Good Friday. You remember that Jesus was anointed um, by the woman who came... Um, to Bethany and anointed Jesus with this costly ointment and um, uh, and Jesus said she'll be remembered forever for this um, because she has prepared my body for burial so that may be why um, Mark bothers to tell us about that the first day of the week um, is if you count Good Friday as day one, the day of crucifixion, the Sabbath day as day two, then, um, I'm sorry, the first day of the week is the third day. The third day is, the, is Good Friday one, uh, Saturday the Sabbath two, Sunday the first day of the week three. And the importance of that is that that's what Jesus had said. There are at least three references in Mark's gospel to Jesus predicting that on the third day, he was going to rise from the dead. Going on, uh, just after sunrise, uh, well, you might think, well, this is just circumstantial detail, uh, not terribly important. Or you might think, well, yeah, just after sunrise, well, that obviously is the earliest time they could have got to the tomb since, you know, you can't go around at night, but there's no light. Um, and what would you go to a tomb at night for? So this was the first time they could get there. But it may be that that, do you remember in the account of the crucifixion, I said the sky went black as Jesus was being crucified and as he was dying. Here, um, there may well be a reference to the transformation that the resurrection represents in that the sun is coming up again. Um, clearly, the rolling the stone away is relevant because the stone had been put in place. A again, it's the, it's the kind of equal and opposite, isn't it? The stone was put in place on Good Friday. The stone is rolled, is rolled away on Easter Sunday. Um, and there's a difference, too, to the women. At the crucifixion, the women, the women were onlookers. The fact that they were looking on has been noted by Mark. That's an important thing for him. Now they're not onlookers, they are the kind of principal characters in what's developing. Uh, their role has also been transformed. Um, I'm afraid you'll hear me using the word transformed a lot because I think it's the best word to describe so much of, of the change that came about between Good Friday and the first Easter Sunday. So their, their, they are, their, their role has been has been changed dramatically. Um, they come across this young man and he's dressed in a white robe. Well, you might say, well, okay, that's what they saw. 
Okay, next, next bit. Let's get on with the action. Um, but what this seems to do to me is, is perhaps to um, explain an element of the arrest story which is very picturesque but doesn't seem to make a lot of sense, doesn't seem to be central to what was going on. Do you remember at the time Jesus was arrested, the disciples ran away and the arresting officers sought to lay hands on a young man and they botched it. They grabbed his clothes and he ran away naked and he was just wearing a white linen sheet. Uh, now, what I'm not suggesting is that that person is the same person as they saw in the tomb, but that Mark is using, again, this device of um, uh, explaining things that were happening um, kind of sort of pictorially, that here was someone who lost his clothes and ran away. Here is someone who has got an important message from God for the women. I'm sure I'm not losing you. I'm sure you're, you're saying, oh yes, I'm sure that's right. Well, we have a discussion at the end and you can, you can decide whether you think I'm mad. Um, sitting on the right side. Why does Mark bother to say sitting on the right side? Um, Mark doesn't give us information that isn't important to him. If you've gone on Christianity Explored, you'll know that we kind of tear through the stories with Mark. They're so brief. He doesn't tell us anything more than he absolutely thinks we need to know. So it's not just, well, I'll put that because then when they're making a film in 2,000 years' time, they'll know where to seat this man. It's because on the right side, the right... Do you remember um, our, our, our apostle James and John asked Jesus if they could sit on his right hand and on his left? Right always comes first. It's the place of the greatest honour. So it's kind of building up the role of this man um, sitting in the tomb. The women, I think this is not surprising, the women were alarmed. Well, it turns out that alarmed is a very moderate translation of the Greek word. A better translation really would be they were terrified. But why wouldn't they be? They, they'd... They thought that this morning was going to be bad enough, that they were going to be confronted with the corpse of a friend who'd been killed um, two, two days earlier. And no, a remarkable thing has happened. The stone's been moved away. I, I would imagine that they didn't just rush into the tomb, but they, they said to us, well, what should we do now? You know, well, we don't want... Well, I mean, what's happened? Is it safe to go into the... Do we want to go into the... Eventually, they went into the tomb, and here is a kind of vision of some kind, and no body. So why wouldn't they be terrified? I would. I'm sure I would be. Um, and uh, this is one of those occasions when I think that the word is really important. Mark only uses this word on two other occasions. One is at Jesus' transfiguration, when the disciples, seeing this Jesus transfigured, shining white again, uh, and talking, I mean, ridiculous, impossible, talking to Moses and Elijah. And, um, and not surprisingly, again, they are terrified too. And the other occasion applies to Jesus himself in the Garden of Gethsemane, when he's praying to God to 
if it's your will, take this cup away from me, but your will, not mine, be done. And he was terrified. Luke kind of puts it into pictorial language by saying he was sweating drops of blood. So it's, um, it's a resonant word. It's an important word, I think, for Mark. Um, and um, it's important for us to get the real sense of it. He has risen. Now, this is another interesting translation point. Uh, the Greek, which I, I don't know anything about, I don't know any Greek at all, but I take, um, you know, I take comfort from all these people who do understand Greek. And the Greek can apparently mean um, uh, the, this phrase, he is risen, or he has been raised. And by and large, in the Bible, if you get a passive like he has been raised, it's shorthand to avoid having to use the word God, for God has raised him. When we get on to Paul, Paul always talks about, or not always, but mostly talks about God raising Jesus up. Um, I was at a pub quiz, and one of the questions was, uh, who did Jesus raise from the dead? Uh, and one of the answers was, which one of the teams gave, well, you know the answer, you know the actual answer, don't you? It's Lazarus. Uh, or the widow of Nain's son, which I don't think was on the sheet of answers. But um, one team gave the answer himself. Uh, and on the basis of he is risen, you might think, well, he did it himself. But, but Paul is definite and determined that that's not what happened. Jesus didn't. He, he, he was dead. If he was raised, then God raised him. And we'll see, uh, not in Mark, but we will see in Matthew in a moment, how Matthew gives, um, kind of emphasises God's involvement in this. So uh, I know that some of this seems rather esoteric and um, splitting hairs, but I think it's important, and um, I'm going to continue to um, expose you to all of this, I'm afraid. Uh, we will have a break in a moment, though, so that you can draw breath and we'll listen to some music. Um, see the place where they laid him refers back to um, the women seeing the, where the tomb was. Um, go and tell. This is interesting, I think, because, um, because throughout Mark's Gospel, there's a general tendency for Jesus to tell people not to tell other people about him, whether he's talking to the the spirits that respond to him, the evil spirits within people, whether he's talking about people he's been healed, he's talking to the disciples when they eventually twig who he is. He says, well, yes, don't say anything. And yet, uh, here is a, is a sudden change, you know, to the women. Go and tell. It's got to be told. This story has to be told now. Um, Jesus is going ahead of you or, or before you can mean either, but it could mean both. Um, in other words, he may be already in Galilee or uh, he is going to kind of lead you in Galilee. And then we get to verse 8. Um, the women fled. Up until now, from really having a kind of negligible involvement in the gospel account, of Jesus' life and ministry. Suddenly at the crucifixion, the women kind of step into uh, uh, the role that this develops out of, where they, they remain. When the, when the disciples fled, the women remained. Women in that society were safe 
uh, as they are in many Middle Eastern societies still, uh, that they're safe, they can go where, where men can't because people won't molest women. Um, and um, so it was safe for them to stay. But they took it further than that. They took the initiative. Uh, they went and, uh, having been terrified by this, um, this young man sitting at the right hand, um, they too were scared. They were, seemed to have become scared in the same way that the disciples were scared. And perhaps there is um, a message there that to kind of go through the crucifixion and resurrection, um, if we don't have some, some sense of its, um, well, scariness in some respects, whether, whether we kind of link into the passion accounts and, and all that happened to Jesus um, uh, uh, during his passion and on the cross, or whether, whether we link into, you know, what, what kind of just seems to us an extraordinary event um, that happened in the resurrection. There is something kind of awesome about all of that, I think. Uh, and I think being scared is not a bad reaction to it. Um, why were they scared? I mean, they'd, get, they'd got a message which kind of confirmed what they probably heard, that Jesus had said that he was, you know, he wasn't going to die forever. Um, but perhaps they were kind of scared by the fact that, that they, had, they, had, they had seen this. Perhaps they were scared by the fact they didn't believe that anybody would take any notice of them. There's some, you know, that gets some credence in, in, in the other gospel accounts where the men clearly don't accept what the women are saying. Um, or perhaps they were scared um, kind of by having got this information, they, they'd somehow become vulnerable because they couldn't ignore it, but people would kind of laugh or worse at them. Um, they may just have been grief-stricken. The fact, it was bad enough that the person they regarded as their, uh, their Messiah, the one who was going to liberate their country, had been crucified. Not only that, but his... His, his body had been taken away and there was clearly something going on that was beyond their ready comprehension. So they said nothing to anyone. How do we account for that? If they had indeed said nothing to anyone, nobody would know. <laughs> uh, and, and history would have been quite different from the way that it was. Uh, I, I really can't... I can't answer that question unless you put in an extra word which is, or an extra phrase which is don't tell anyone else or don't tell anyone other than the disciples. Um, but it's a bit of a cliffhanger and it's a bit of a kind of, uh, it's sort of um, an anticlimax, isn't it? You know, here's the message, just go and tell them and then everything's going to be fine as he said it would be. And they were so scared they ran away and didn't say anything to anybody. So, it's not time for the music yet, but I'm holding that out as an, an encouragement to you because it is still quite warm in here and I wouldn't blame anybody who felt their eyelids closing because it's quite possible to listen um, while you've got your eyes closed. So. And I can't, I can't see that well anyway. Um, so, 
from all of that, um, what, what can we kind of take about Mark's approach to, to uh, the res- this post-resurrection account and, and, the, and the resurrection itself? Um, I think in a way, it, it's, it, is, all, it is all odd. And, and I think you could say that, um, that if we just had this account, we could reasonably say, well, the world's been turned upside down. That might be the message that Mark is, is trying to give, that, that everything that we thought was firm ground has become shifting sand. You know, the great leader, the Messiah, uh, the Son of God's been put to death in this shameful and disgusting way. Uh, and now his body's disappeared and we're told that he's risen from the dead. Would it have been by an angel? Well, it says by a young man. Hmm. I know. Uh, Mark, wrote, Mark wrote what he wrote. Matthew wrote what he wrote. So let's leave that until we come to Matthew. Uh, you, have to, you have to make your own, draw your own conclusions, really. Uh, I, I don't... As you'll have gathered, I don't have all the answers. Um, what's an angel? Angels, when they appear in the Old Testament, sometimes appear to be like men. Uh, at other times, they appear to be like visions. Um, so, I, well, we, we'll, we'll, we'll reflect on that. We can put that on the list, if you want to, in due course. Um, there's one really important thing, I think, that... Um, the reason that the women became so uh, uh, agitated was because, in reality, in spite of what Jesus had said, I mean, these women and the disciples weren't going around with what Jesus had said kind of ringing in their heads. Oh, he said he was going to be raised. The men had run away in fear. The women had seen the men running away. The women had seen this crucifixion and they'd seen the burial in the tomb and the sealing of the tomb. That Easter morning, nobody was expecting what is reported here actually to have happened. They weren't expecting anything. They were expecting to be the body to be there where it had been left on the Friday evening. And, and again, I think that's important in, in the sense that it's not as if they expected to find the stone rolled away, that they expected to see the man or the angel in Matthew's account or that they expected the tomb to be empty. And therefore, in a sense, they were kind of predisposed to seeing that and reporting it. Not at all. It was going to be another Sunday morning, just like any other Sunday morning, when the business of the week would start again. And of course, the stone was rolled away. Stones don't move themselves, but apparently this one did. Um, people aren't raised from the dead. They knew that. Uh, 2,000 years on, we think we're terribly sophisticated, but people 2,000 years ago knew as well as we do that bodies don't rise from the dead. They weren't ignorant. Um, you know, they were, in, in some respects, they knew as much as we do. And that doesn't happen. Um, but... If Jesus had been raised from the dead by God, then that was saying something really important, not just about that event, but about everything else that Jesus had done in his life. It was kind of confirming its validity, 
it was confirming that yes, Jesus, in spite of having been put to death in this shameful way, was the Messiah. He was the Son of God. And then we come back to the women. Some people have suggested, and suggested in, with, with, with kind of some degree of uh, kind of logic to it, that, um, well, these stories are made up. These post-resurrection accounts are kind of wish fulfillment of the early church, trying to rationalize uh, the fact that they felt that Jesus was with them through the Holy Spirit, um, that they kind of had access to uh, the, the risen Lord Jesus in a, in a spiritual way. If you were inventing a story, would you, as your first item, put the women coming to... The women, their story never counted in that society. They could not even be witnesses in a trial. So who in their right minds, if they were trying to invent a plot that hadn't happened, would put women in as the main characters? Everybody in those days and now would think of it as just ludicrous. You kind of be, you'd be laughed, and, and the reality is much more likely than the idea of an invention. But we are left at the end of Mark's gospel with, with if this is God's plan, it's a very kind of risky plan, isn't it? The women get to hear, and then the, they can't cope with the implications, or they can't cope with what they've seen and heard. At that point, it seems as though God's plan is kind of hanging by a thread. And Mark won't tell us what happens next. However, we know from the other accounts that the disciples did see Jesus. Um, We know that not only did they see him, but that he kind of restored them, these ones who had run away. They were restored uh, to, I guess, to their own self-esteem, but to their own belief in Jesus uh, and that he was one who was going to go ahead of them and go ahead in the sense of leading them again. So I thought what we'd do now, just to change the, um, change, change the mood a bit, is, is, to, is to have um, just a short little piece of music. And the music that I've chosen is from Bach's um, B minor Mass. Uh, when, in the Roman Catholic Church, when the Mass was being set, it was set according to a, a regular pattern. Um, and so the creed is usually the third movement or series of movements. Uh, and in the creed, of course, this is the same creed as we have, um, we have that Jesus was crucified, dead, and buried. And on the third day he rose again, according to the scriptures, was ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God. And from there it comes to check. And all that, we don't get that far in this extra. Um, what I think is interesting is just, just, um, just note the way in which um, Bach treats uh, the, at the end of the crucifixus. He was crucified at Passus. He died. Uh, et sepultus est, was buried, et resurrexit. So um, I just have to slip into my cupboard here now for this. If I don't come back, you'll, you'll know that I'm <laughs> <laughs>
that than hear me again. <laughs> Um, it just it, there's, there's no major point from that except, except um, to notice the, the distinction between the harmonies in the, in the crucifixes um, and, um, and, and the change from, from the disharmony of particularly at Sepulchre's Est to um, you know, the blazing of the trumpets and the major key or whatever it is for uh, it resurrects it. And the fact that in, a, in, in kind of oral terms uh, we move from one world of, of desolation, really, uh, into a world of great joy. Now, that's no surprise to us, uh, because we're able to look back on this, uh, and this is the tr Christian tradition. Uh, but we will, when we come to the third week on Paul, and in the fourth week, when we're talking about the implications for us, we will be unpacking a bit um, the, the kind of discontinuity between, between the earthly... Um, destruction and awfulness of death and all that the resurrection implies and that you know that seems to be a good musical example so we're going to go on to Matthew now you'll be pleased to hear that we're not going to read the whole of Matthew's account I'm just going to point out to you one or two things that are different you may know that much of Matthew's gospel does follow Mark's gospel but that there are some significant differences. Sometimes they're difference of emphasis, but there are significant portions of Matthew that aren't in Mark at all. Some of those are in Luke as well. Some of, some of the distinctive bits in Matthew are in Luke, but in addition to that, there are bits that are in Matthew that aren't in Luke either. So people suggest that, that Matthew clearly had access to Mark, um, and he had access to a common tradition with Luke, but that he also had access to a third tradition, which, which was separate. Um, and um, that's not terribly important in reality. It's also interesting that throughout most of uh, the Christian era, um, Matthew's Gospel was the one that was used as being the best representation of the the lifetime of Jesus uh, and Mark was considered to be a rather shoddy and poor abbreviation of Matthew uh, so Mark if you look back to writings you know for any time between um, 100 and 1900 you'll find a strong emphasis on Matthew uh, and very few references to Mark for that reason uh, and it's only since people started applying modern technology and modern thought processes to actually how it would have worked. You know, why would, why would someone cut out the best bits of Matthew, like the Sermon on the Mount? Nobody would do that, would they? It would just be ridiculous and a daft thing to do. So um, that's not the only reason that people think that Matthew was written after Mark. Um, but, you know, we, we could spend hours on it, but we're not going to. Um, now, we'll see, and, and I'll just point out a few of them, we'll see that Mark's account does, does follow Mark, uh, Matthew's account does follow Mark, but there are some dramatic differences, and dramatic in, in the sense of being dramatic. So, um, if you'd just like to cast your eyes down uh, the Matthew column, verse 2, a violent earthquake. Cue, small child, toppling over toys, to make the point. Um, 
It's the second earthquake. There was one only a couple of days ago. It's a really earthquake-prone uh, environment there, in, according, according to Matthew. Um, as, as Richard has astutely pointed out, um, here is an angel, not a man in white, an angel. Earthquakes and angels, everybody knows, come from God. So he's emphasising He's emphasising that point um, that uh, there's nothing there's nothing arbitrary about this. This isn't happenstance or anything like that. Um, he has to deal with the soldiers, um, and uh, they get quite uh, quite an element of, um, of of treatment because having having put them there. Um, he then has to say, well, what were they doing when these events happened? Uh, and um, they kind of were temporarily uh, disempowered. But there's really one interesting thing. It goes back to the women. The women have already been given significant prominence in Mark. In Matthew, their prominence, their significance is enhanced. If you look down that first page, verse 9, the women were hurrying away from the tomb and uh, Matthew reports, suddenly Jesus met them. It's difficult to say this with a straight face. Greetings, he said. <laughs> uh, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a kind of, you know, our words perhaps don't have the kind of dignity that perhaps the original Greek, Greek had. Uh, greetings. They came to him, clasped his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to him, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee where they will see me. And, um, and there's nothing about the women, you know, not saying anything to anyone. They clearly do go and tell the disciples. Because if you keep turning over and come down to uh, page six and seven of the synopsis, the next to last pages... The eleven disciples, that is the twelve less Judas, went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always, to the very end of the age." Those, as you may recognise, are the words of the Great Commission. Well, they, they've come to be called the words of the Great Commission because that seemed to be a pretty good way of describing what they are. Sending out the disciples, and we'll come back to one or two elements of that. But, but that's clearly very different, very different ending, very different circumstantial detail to Mark's account. And uh, why is that? Well, there seems to be there seems to be a focus on God through through the earthquake, through the angel, um, uh, the soldiers being there means that whatever happened to the body couldn't have been couldn't have happened through human intervention because that's precisely what the soldiers were there to prevent. So again, uh, the soldiers were, in Matthew's account seem to be there to. Um, to prevent any suggestion that someone went and pinched the body. 
um, and that therefore uh, by um, by exclusion it must be it must be God's work. So so uh, Matthew is, is emphasising God's role uh, in all of this. And then finally, that that great commission um, is is interesting because. Uh, although Matthew is probably writing to a Jewish community or a principally Jewish community, uh, and whereas Jesus himself during his ministry saw his, uh, his responsibility mainly to the Jewish people, there is no doubt from the Great Commission that um, the disciples were to go out to all nations. If we look in a bit more detail at Matthew's account, um, whereas in Mark, many of the references back were to important occasions in Jesus' time. In Matthew, um, there are those kind of references, but they are right to the beginning of his gospel, to the infancy narratives. Um, And it's almost as though um, Matthew is wanting to emphasize the connection between what happened at the beginning of Jesus' life and what was happening now um, kind of beyond the end of his earthly life. Uh, so, uh, so we know that there were angels. Angel came. Angels were constantly talking um, in dreams to Joseph, um, reminding him what he ought to be doing. Angels come to the wise men, don't they? And um, and so the presence of an angel is is significant for Matthew. Um, this whole idea. You remember that after the wise men had gone. Uh, an angel tells uh, Joseph to take Mary and Jesus into Egypt. This is hugely symbolic for Matthew because Egypt was the place from which the people of Israel came out in the Exodus. And there's a sense in which Matthew wants to tie in this account of the resurrection to that and to Jesus going to Egypt, being brought back when things were safe by his parents. Uh, and therefore, uh, casting Jesus uh, through the resurrection, being brought back from that place of desolation and awfulness, which Egypt represented in the Old Testament and death represents in the New, that the resurrection is God's way of, of bringing Jesus back. And Matthew wants to link it in to the infancy story of Jesus and through that to the Exodus narrative. So tying the whole of his account right back to the kind of salvation history of Israel. Um, The women and and the disciples worshipped Jesus when they saw him, uh, just like the wise men did in those early days. Um, The baptism in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit is... is, um, seems to be a fulfilment of of the prophecy of of John the Baptist um, uh, when when he um, came up against Jesus early on. It's interesting too that the Great Commission is very different. It's a very, um, there's a lot of freedom for the disciples to interpret that. It's quite different from the way in which Jesus sent them out during their earthly ministry. Remember he sent them out two by two. Again, the very clear instructions, you know, don't take, don't take this, don't take that. Um, go into this house, and if they welcome you, stay, and if they don't, shake the dust off your feet, and all that kind of thing. Here he says, just go and make disciples. Just go and do it, and teach them. Teaching's a very important idea for Matthew. 
um, with his focus on Jesus' teaching on, in the Sermon on the Mount and, and the various other uh, teaching elements. And, um, and I am with you always um, seems to take us back to Emmanuel, God with us um, in, in the infancy uh, in the birth narrative. Um, and almost the last words to the very end of the age or perhaps they are the last words to the very end of the age Matthew's gospel begins uh, with the genealogy not everybody's most favourite part of any of the gospels or even of the bible you know X begat Y and all that kind of thing 42 generations quite a lot of begatting going on Um, but interestingly it starts off the genealogy of Jesus, the son of David. Okay, well, everybody, yeah, son of David. That's the son of Abraham. Um, and, and so, kind of, Abraham takes us further back. That's, a, that's where, that's where uh, Matthew starts his genealogy with, with Abraham. Goes via David, gets up to the present day with, with Joseph, Joseph, the supposed father of Jesus. Um, the importance of that... I think is that that um, Abraham, the father of the Jewish nation, is the beginning of everything for the Jewish people. And here I am with you always to the end of the age. The end of the age is the end, not just for the Jewish nation, but for all of us. So, so going back further even than um, than than the Exodus, going right back to to Abraham. So if I wanted to summarise Matthew's kind of testimony about the resurrection, um, picking up some of those strands, it is, it is something like God's plan is fulfilled, that, that, um, that this is all part of what had been planned. Whereas in, in Mark, there's a sense of um, the extraordinary, you know, the world being turned upside down by these events. Of course, that remains in Matthew, but, but, but he's keen to point out that you know, yeah. Well, this is this is what God had in mind uh, all the way along, and and you can, if you if you have the eyes to see, you can see all this uh, going through. Again, as in Mark, um, Jesus had predicted his resurrection, so you might think that it oughtn't to be a great surprise. Um, again, the idea that the theme of of these post-resurrection accounts in Matthew about God's power. Um, the women, the women, they just, their, their role is expanded and that makes no sense if someone's making up a story. Um, but they, they do more than just see Jesus. Uh, they touch him. And as we'll discover next week, the idea of Jesus having a uh, touchable, uh, tangible, physical body becomes very important uh, and it's something that Paul wrestles with um, when we come to him in in week three. So they not only see but they uh, touch and and experience Jesus as a risen person. Um, The soldiers, (laughs) I put in my notes, the soldiers add texture. I, I leave you to decide whether you think that 
that Matthew has, has made up the story of the soldiers to address an issue which may have been uh, a real issue and which has tended to kind of continue to circulate uh, ever since. People who wanted to be sceptical about all of this question of the resurrection said, well, it's obvious the disciples just took the body away, uh, left the tomb open, there we are. Uh, everything else is spiritual. Uh, you know, we don't doubt that people had real spiritual, there were spiritual emanations and people experienced them and they were entirely valid, no less valid than the coming of the Holy Spirit, but there was never a raised physical body. Uh, and what happened was the disciples just took the corpse away uh, so that they could get on weaving these ingenious plots involving women, that kind of thing. Uh, but I leave you to decide whether, whether, whether the um, soldiers were there. Um, throughout um, time when people have been uh, doing <coughs> pictures of the resurrection, almost every picture of the resurrection that you'll come across will have the soldiers. And, but I don't think that's because they were necessarily there. Um, I'm kind of agnostic as to the soldiers because I don't think they, they add a great deal to the account beyond all the rest um, which does seem to me to, to point to something kind of beyond that. But um, look, at, look at almost any picture of the resurrection. You'll, you'll, see, you'll see the soldiers. And that's, that reflects the fact that Matthew's, Matthew's gospel was the prime gospel for telling, telling the facts. And also that if you're an artist, to have some uh, kind of semi-recumbent soldiers in your picture fills in the foreground at the bottom of the picture, <laughs> I think. <coughs> Um, otherwise, you're, again, as an artist, you're dealing with very, you know, what is, how do you portray the resurrection? Um, you'll already have tweaked to it. There is no account of the resurrection itself anywhere in the Bible. Not a single account. Nobody, nobody tried to make that up. They didn't think he needed to make it up because if it was God working, then there we are. And again, that's, a, that's an aspect of what we'll be talking about in week four. Um, uh, is there something about the event of the resurrection as opposed to the post-resurrection events, the things that happened afterwards, immediately afterwards? Is there something about that that tells us something about God and Jesus in relation to us and our faith? But that's all for later on, if you can, um, if you can um, kind of maintain the pace, really. Um, The soldiers, I mean, the soldiers are, have, are interesting in a way because they're, they're kind of disempowered, but they can't account for what's happened to them. And, and to begin with, neither can the disciples. The distinction is that the, that the soldiers never can, but the disciples eventually are, are able to. They're kind of, they, they go beyond just the kind of the, the amazing effects of, of, of what they see and hear. Um, but... The disciples still are not getting good write-ups, are they? Because they don't believe the women, in Matthew's account. Even when they go and inspect the tomb, they don't know what's going on. They haven't kind of quite made it in Matthew's Gospel. And we'll see how that kind of point is addressed in, in the other Gospel accounts uh, next week. And although the Great Commission is a, a kind of, you know, it's, it's, it's a nice, neat ending, and, and you, can, you can say, oh, well, they were sent out from there. Um, interesting, you may have just picked up that Jesus met them in a, on a mountain in Galilee. 
for Matthew, that's hugely important because the mountain was where Moses received the commandments from God. The mountain was where Jesus gave his intensive teaching about that law, the Sermon on the Mount, and you have heard it said that. And then um, Jesus saying, but I tell you this. Uh, Jesus kind of transforming things on that mountain and here on this further mountain, sending the disciples and sending them out in a new way, baptizing in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and baptizing not just the Jewish people, but all nations. Uh, the mountain is what ties those things together and gives the Great Commission uh, its kind of um, theological weight, if you want to put it like that. So, well, we've cantered through Matthew and Mark.